are uh, in the fifth week of our sermon series that we're calling The Essentials. It's the fifth week of the Christian season of Lent. For the past four weeks, we've been going through kind of the essential ideas of the gospel. The idea is, if you were to take the Bible and you lay it out in an outline form, these would be like the primary uh, uh, Roman numerals, the main headings of that outline. Four weeks ago, we started with the first essential, that is that you were created good. We got that from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, where God formed all of us in his image, where God created all things on the sixth day, looked at everything he created and said, it's very good. And, and even though the world today doesn't always look the way God created, even though we don't always look the way God created, it's essential, I believe, to know that God created us good in the beginning, that God had a wonderful plan for us and for this whole world. And until we understand that, it's hard to understand what sin did to us or the cost of redemption or the hope of glory to come. So that's the first essential. The second essential is that you're not okay. This is just acknowledging from Genesis 3 that when Adam and Eve sinned, they ate of that fruit where God said, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. When they ate of that tree, they did die spiritually. Eventually, they died physically. And if not for God's grace, they and all of us would die spiritually. Uh, we know that God has redeemed us in Christ, but it's essential to understand what sin has done for, to us because sin continues to kill us continues to destroy our world and destroy our lives. And until we understand that, we can't really understand what redemption is all about. We know from reading the newspaper that the world's not okay. We can see that in earthquakes in Turkey. We can see that in tornadoes in Mississippi. We can see that in war, the war in Ukraine. But we can also recognize this when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we're honest with ourselves. We're honest with what's in our heart, that we're not okay. That leads to the third essential of the gospel, which is that the cross is your cure. The beautiful thing about the gospel is that even though we ran from God, even though we rebelled against God, even though we brought sin and death on ourselves, and even though apart from God's grace, we are spiritually dead, God didn't give up on us. God didn't give up on this creation. God loves this world. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. That proves God's love for us. And on that cross, Jesus, the perfect man, took our sin upon himself. The, the second person in the Trinity, the person who would live forever, died and took our death upon himself. And so the cross is the cure for this disease that we have, that the whole world has, called sin and death. And it's by faith in God's grace demonstrated on the cross that that becomes effective in our lives. And that led to the fourth essential, which we talked about last week, which is that you can start again. By God's grace, God has offered us a new life. While we can't fix our lives, the God who gave us life in the first place has offered us a new life. The God who formed us in our parents' womb and gave us a physical life, a flesh birth, offers us a spiritual life, a new birth. And it's through that new birth that we can experience the first fruits of this redemption, which ultimately will be completed in the end. And so the question that we come up to now as we're approaching the end of these essentials, the end of this outline, is how does it end? Well, when you know these five essentials, the natural question is, how does it end? Or 
Why am I not experiencing the fullness of this new life? I've talked to Christians all the time and they say, you know, what, what's happening? If God loves me and loves this world and has a wonderful plan for this world and sent Jesus to redeem the world and offers us forgiveness and new life, why did this happen? Well, why did my husband leave me? Or why did my kids rebel against the faith? Or why did the friend of mine pass away? Why? Because we live in this period where we have experienced the first fruits of this redemptive work, the first fruits of this regeneration, but it hasn't come in its fullness yet. But the good news of the gospel is that you can trust God, that it ends well, that in the end, God is going to reform a new creation, that God who created this world is going to give us a new creation. God who gave us this life is going to give us a new life. And we can read that in Revelation chapters 20, 21, 22. We're going to look at 21 and 22 today, but in Revelation chapter 20, it says that in the end, God is going to take Satan and sin and death itself and throw them into the lake of fire. We won't live with the temptation of sin or with Satan's accusations or with sin and death anymore. And then in chapter 21 and 22, Revelation gives us a, a vision, a picture of the way it ends. And we're going to work our way through much of that this morning. In Revelation 21, these are the last two chapters of the Bible, 21 verses 1 and 2, it says this, this is John speaking of a vision that he saw that Christ has allowed him to see through an angel. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's a beautiful picture of the way it ends. It ends with a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. The scripture says, no more sea, no more sea. When I read that, I, I myself am a little disappointed. I'm an ocean guy. I love, I love the ocean. I love the water. I love the sea. So for me, I'm like, no more sea, you know, no more beach days. That's going to be tough, you know. Well, when, when the scripture, though, in Revelation says no more sea, what it, it's working on a metaphor that was very prevalent in that day, that the sea was seen as a place of chaos, a place of death, a place of like the unknown brokenness of this world. And so when it says no more sea, what it means is no more chaos, no more death, no more destruction. That this, this world that's coming is a place of peace, a place of unity, a place of security. And that's the vision that we have. A heavenly Jerusalem, the, the revelation describes it as 1,500 miles one way and 1,500 miles the other way, uh, 1,500 miles square coming down from heaven in this beautiful new creation, this new garden-like uh, earth that God's going to create, this new world and this new heaven that we're going to be part of forever. And in the rest of Revelation 21 and 22, uh, the Apostle John gives us a kind of Four attributes, I would say, uh, characteristics of this life that we're going to have for all eternity with God. And so I want to walk us through and just encourage you as we think about this fifth essential that, that we can trust God. It's going to end well. Let me, let me read it for you. This is Roman numeral one, uh, the first attribute of this new creation. That is, we won't be alone. 
When we get there to that new heaven, that new earth, we won't be alone. So many people, when you talk about what's going to happen in the end, their assumption is you really can't know what's going to happen. After you die, you really don't know. How, how would anybody know? But the Scripture wants us to know how it ends. It's part of the assurance that God gives us in, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But through God's Word, God gives us this assurance of what it'll be like. Number one, you won't be alone. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men or people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Can you imagine living with God, God in our midst? Not, not in our midst like we experience as a foretaste now through the Holy Spirit who we experience in our lives, but in fading ways as in a mirror dimly, but God living in our midst. It's a beautiful image. It's like the image of the garden where Adam and Eve were placed in this beautiful garden where there was no sin, no death, and God would walk with them in the cool of the day, that God would actually live in our midst, the God who came down in his glory and filled the tabernacle, the holy of holies, that no one could enter, only the priest with a sacrifice once a year could enter, that God is going to live with us. It's such, a, it's such a foreign idea. It's such a, a, a difficult idea for us because we know God as transcendent, not as imminent in our life as transcendent. We are broken, sinful people. We are creation. God is eternal. God is creator. There's this, there's this separation between us and God. But the scripture testifies that in the end, God will live in the midst of us. He'll make his dwelling with us. He'll tabernacle with us. He will live with his creation. You know, in a fallen, sinful state that we live in, we can't be in God's presence that way. Even the most holy person alive cannot be in God's presence in this way, cannot see God face to face. You think about Moses in the Old Testament. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush God invited Moses up to the Mount of Sinai to give Moses the law. God talked to Moses. Moses said, I I, I need to know your name if I'm going to call the children of Israel to follow me. God revealed his name to Moses. But when Moses said, God, I want to see you face to face, Moses said, you can't see me face to face. Even the most holy person in this world can't see me face to face. He said, I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock on the mountain, and I'll pass by, and you'll see my glory from behind. But you cannot see God face to face and live. The children of Israel weren't even allowed on the mountain. If they touched the mountain because it was so holy, because God's presence was so close there, they would die. And that's how our lives would be. We can't stand in God's presence, we who are under the curse of sin and death. We we can't live in God's presence. Now, we experience God's presence in, in small ways. On a retreat, sometimes we experience the Holy Spirit fill our lives Uh, Sometimes when we're worshiping, we experience the Holy Spirit. And and for many of us, when we experience the presence of God, we crave more of that. You know that feeling where where, where you experience God in your life and you're like, God, I need more. God, I want more. Or those times in our lives when we cry out to God and we don't experience God's closeness because that's the nature of this broken world. But in that day, God is going to live in our very midst. You ever wish you could have more of God? You ever, you ever experience God's presence and you're like, that's what I need? Or, experience, or hope that 
your neighbors or your friends or your kids or your grandkids could experience more of God. That's one of my prayers is, God, help my kids experience you. Help our church experience your presence. Help. But the truth is, is, as Paul says, we see through a mirror dimly now. We, we don't know God fully now, but in that day, we will know fully even as we are fully known. We won't be alone. That's the first attribute you can see of the life that's coming, the new creation. The second attribute of the new creation is that we won't be sad. We, we won't be grief. We won't cry. There won't be mourning. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. He'll wipe away every tear. There won't be any death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Something about the life that we live in, there's always this incongruency. It's the nature of the life we live in. It was created good by God, and it's broken and sinful. Life is a gift from God, and yet we will all die. And so the nature of that incongruency is this sense of grief, this sense of loss. Crying is a part of that, but it's grief from so many things. It's rooted in sin and death. All of us experience this grief in our lives. I remember the first time when I was a child, remembering grieving deeply, my parents told us that they were going to have to put our dog down. And I was probably five or six years of age. And they, they told me that I wouldn't see our dog again. And I was just, I remember just like holding on to my dog and not wanting my dad to take the dog and crying. And it's grief, it's loss. All of us experience that. I remember the first funeral I went to was my great-grandmother's funeral. I was probably like seven or eight years of age. And at the funeral home, they were trying to distract me. They had a television in one room. They're like, you can sit in here and watch television while we go in here. And they had the, the viewing, the wake. And, but my parents told me, you know, we won't, as long as we're alive in this earth, we won't see great-grandma again. That one day we'll see her in heaven. But, but in this life, we, we, won't, we won't be able to see her. And there's that grief that's lost. Over the past 30 years of being a pastor, I've probably been part of uh, 300 or more funerals. And then many of you have been to many more funerals than that. And every time there's this grief, oftentimes in that funeral, as I talk to family members, loved ones, there's a sense of why would God let this happen? How, how, could, how could this be? This isn't fair. It isn't fair. God, because God didn't create death we all have that natural grief of it shouldn't be this way. And that's true. It is this way. And we know from the time our children are born that they will die. I mean, it's part of the process of this life in this fallen world. But it's not part of God's creation. And in God's new creation, there won't be any death. There won't be any grief. There won't be any mourning. We don't just grieve death, right? There are many things we grieve. We grieve when our kids don't make decisions that we'd like them to make, or they don't follow paths in life that we would choose for them. We, we grieve when we lose a job or when we lose a friendship. We grieve when we make a mistake and our, we wound our, our, our spouse or someone we love. We, 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 
this life is a constant fluctuation of this incongruency between ways that we see God's grace breaking through and life being the way it should be and the brokenness of life which causes us grief and pain. The good news is that when we get to that day, like Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned, there won't be any more sadness. There won't be any more death. There won't be any more grief. There won't be any more crying, any more loss. It'll be life the way that it was created to be. And that's good news. The second attribute, that's the second attribute, you won't be sad. The third attribute of this life and this new creation is that we're all invited. I'll read it for you, verse 6 through 8. We're all invited. It says, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or my child. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The good news of this new creation is that all are invited. And it says in verse 8, invited without cost. It says in verse 8, I will give to the one who thirsts. It's a gift, this life, this eternal life, this new life, this new kingdom is a gift that God gives us that we don't earn, we don't deserve. There's nothing we can do to pay for it. There's, there's, there's nothing that, that merits it to us, but it's a free gift that God offers, and we believe that God offers it to all, that God invites all to be part of this, that it's without cost. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's a free gift. Of course, the Scripture goes on to say that not everyone will be there. It lists all these attributes of people that won't be there unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers. You can't have murderers in a place where there's no death, right? You can't have liars in a place where there's only truth. You can't have idolaters in a place where God lives in our midst. That wouldn't work. And so God says through, through his word here in Revelation chapter 21, that those folks, murderers, idolaters, and more people, they'll be thrown in the lake of fire. Of course, when it says that, we instantly think, oh my, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I've lied. I'm sure I've done immoral things. I, I know, I, as far as I know, I haven't murdered anybody, but I've, I've been angry with people, and Jesus says that that's the same as murder. The truth is, is that when it says there'll be no murderer, it doesn't mean that no one who's ever murdered will be there. King David murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Even worse, the apostle Paul oversaw the murder of Stephen, the first witness, the first martyr of the church. And so it's not, it's not saying that there's no one there who's ever sinned. There's no one there who's ever murdered. There's no one there who's ever been immoral. There's no one there who's ever committed idolatry. We all are guilty of that. What it says is that there's no one there who chooses that life, who rejects God and God's purpose and chooses that life instead. That when, when you know, C.S. Lewis would say of hell, that hell is a place that those who absolutely do not want to be in God's presence and do not want God's plan for their life finally get what they want. 
that, that hell is the monument to God's human freedom, that God will not force us to live his life, his way, and his creation. But God invites all. Now, all are invited. It's a free gift. It's open to everyone. That's good news. And the fourth of these attributes that we can read in Revelation, this is going on to Revelation 22 now, is that that new creation, when we get there, we will be home. It will feel like home. You will be home. Let me read it for you, Revelation 22, 1 through 6. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of a, the light of a lamp or, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. When we get there, we'll be home. And it's a beautiful description of what home looks like. This beautiful river flowing through from the throne of God, crystal clear. This tree between the river and the street that bears fruit, 12 different kinds of fruit, 12 months of the year. There's bounty of food all the time, and its leaves bring healing to the nations. And God will be in our midst. We'll see him face to face. His name will be on our foreheads, and we'll be his. We'll serve him and live in this beautiful, illumined life where there's no darkness. There's no night. He'll be in the midst, and we'll be home. When I say we'll be home, what I mean is not that we'll go back to our home, right? I can't go back to 1969 Arlington when I was born, right? When, when I go back to the street I was born on, uh, or, or I grew up, I mean, uh, all the homes have changed. The little rambler I grew up in is now a massive home, and, and there may be on the 10 houses that are similar to my house on my street and the next street over, maybe two of them even look like they did when I was a kid. Even the road I, I, I grew up on now is different. It's turned. It's got a cul-de-sac at the end. It's, it's all different. But what I mean when I say going home is going home to the, to the home we were created for. Let, let me read for you Genesis chapter 2. This is the way God created the garden. This is a picture of what life was supposed to be like and what life was like before Adam and Eve sinned. It said, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused every tree, caused to grow every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. The tree of life also was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. I don't know if you notice it, but that picture of the first creation before the fall, the picture of the garden where God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, where there was clean water running around and through the, the, the garden, where the tree of life stood in the middle and bounty of food around. That picture is kind of echoes into the second creation, which has this clean water running through and the tree of life in the middle and God on the throne there in our midst. We will be home. When, when we get to that new creation, we will, for the first time in our lives, be in the place that we were created to live in, a place with no mourning and no grief and no loss, a place where God resides with us, a place where we'll not be alone, a place with no sadness and loss, a place where everyone's invited. And so you can trust God. It ends well. This is the main point that we're thinking about here. You, you can trust God. It, it ends well. So, so many people in our life, even people in the church, say you can never know how it's going to end. Just, you, you can't. No, the scripture wants us to know because we live differently when we know. I handle the tragedies of my life differently when I know how it ends. I, I handle the grief in my life differently when I know that grief will be defeated, that sin and death have already been defeated, but in the end, they'll be thrown in the lake of fire. I handle my disappointments in life. We had a funeral, uh, a, a celebration of life here yesterday for a dear member of the church, Jenny McConnell. And, and we can live differently knowing that we will be with her again in this life the way that God created it to be. You know, the Bible gives us these essentials. Just to review them real quickly. Number one, you were created good. God's got a wonderful plan and a purpose for your life. Number two, you and everyone else, we've gone our own way. Even the creation itself is broken and doesn't live according to God's plan and purpose. Number three, uh, the cross is a cure. Jesus has come to give us a new life, to offer us redemption and forgiveness and that we can begin to experience that new life, this is number four, through his Holy Spirit and the regeneration of this life that he's given us in this world. But ultimately, the fullness of that new creation we're going to experience when Christ returns and when he creates a new heaven, new earth, and he lives there in our midst and we're with him forever, and that's good news. That, that is a picture of the gospel. That is a outline of the idea of what this is all about, that God has a plan and purpose, and God's going to fulfill this purpose. And the good news is that you and I can be part of it. Let's pray that might be so. Lord God, we thank you for this truth of the gospel, this truth that you're not done with us, that you haven't given up on us, that you have a plan and purpose, and that you have the power to bring it about, that in Christ you've already defeated sin and death, and that one day you will throw Satan and sin and death and all those who will not submit to your plan out of uh, this creation. But you'll create a new heaven, a new earth, where we can live with you forever. And we thank you. We thank you that this invitation is for all who will receive, that there's no price or penalty or payment that we have to make. And so, Lord, we say, Lord, I want to be part of that. Lord, I want you to come into my life I want to experience the first fruit of this uh, 
new life right now today. I want to experience your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I want the assurance that I'm yours and that you're mine and that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your gospel. May we live differently because we know what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.